Welcome to another Arrigo podcast. Technically speaking, our goal is to bring the Icelandic business community the latest greatness test ideas in technological transformation. Today, I'm interviewing Madeleine Ashby, a futurist and science fiction writer. Now, you might be thinking, hey, why are you bringing us a science fiction writer and futurist? Well, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the future has become today very, very quickly. Uh, we've gone through probably five years of digital transformation in about four months. Uh, and I'm not sure about you, but my feet are on fire from the speed that I'm moving. So Madeline is uh, a co-author of How to Future, Leading and Sensemaking in an Age of Hyperchange. And the whole team at Ego felt that we couldn't do anything more than help you manage the change, irrespective of whether you use us, you're a customer, a future customer, or you use our competitors, we all need help in managing change. So without further ado, let me introduce Madeline Ashby. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolute, absolute pleasure. So uh, so tell us where you're sitting today and uh, what the weather's like. Uh, I am in Toronto right now, so uh, cool. I'm uh, on the eastern uh you know, in, in, on Eastern time. Uh, and it is about, uh, it is 12 degrees and clear and sunny. Uh, so it's actually kind of perfect autumn weather for, it's perfect October weather out here. And uh, it's really, really gorgeous. I really like, I really like living in a place that has seasons. Yeah. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest where the seasons aren't as well defined. And, uh, and I actually really enjoy marking the passage of time here by a the Very seasons. Nice. It's a big and, change. And, and you were telling me uh, in the warm-up to this that you've been to Iceland, which is fantastic. I have. I have. I really enjoyed it. It's on my list uh, to go back to uh, when it's safe to travel again. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to be a guest of honor at a science fiction convention called Suikon, which is held in Sweden. And I'd never been that far north before. And so I decided that uh, my husband and I decided that on the way back, we, we really wanted to do Iceland. And we really loved it. We really, really. Which really was your uh, Which is your favorite piece of Iceland? <sighs> Actually, you know what it was it was the all thing, like uh, going to the other seat of democracy was right. was very important, and we both felt really touched to be in this like in, to to be on on you know on a place where you can literally see the geology of the planet. And that also had such a huge, you know, it's really interesting to me when the landscape of a place and its history so uniquely match each other. Yeah. Like, and, and where you can look down into sort of this fissure and also look down into historical fissures. Yeah. And, and to see where, where so many decisions got made and, you know, and also like where so many executions happened. Yeah. And so on. I mean, what I love about Iceland is that if you're learning geography in school, I mean, how cool uh-huh. is that? Like, yeah, doing, no, it's we're doing volcanoes, children. Oh, what's a volcano? Let's go and see. It's next door. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really it really was like uh, I, it was so impressive and so it's really a humbling place to be. It's a very humbling place to be. You really get a sense, and I think the desert is also like this. People say this about like going out into the desert, where they suddenly realize like how fragile they are as human beings. Yeah, it's a bit and like I it's th- sort of like you just realize that like you have to work very hard as a human being to make existence work. Not necessarily as much today, but like hundreds of years ago, like you had to really want to be there. 
Well, I think there's a, I think that there's a, yeah, you really do, you really do have to want to, well, especially now that you can leave, but um, the, I think that there's a, there's something in there about, you know, and, and I think a lot of sci-fi writers feel this when they visit Iceland, is that when you leave, you realize like, oh, wow, this is the model for Mars, it's this, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's this desolate landscape in some ways, but it's also a community that has to gather together and really do for itself and, and work together and become enmeshed in it, in, in each other and really decide on its own way of doing things, which Iceland had for, for many, many years yeah. and, and that, that, decide that, 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 on trying to exclude the Danish influence. Yeah, in exactly. You know, like the, um, finding a way to gather together in community and sustain that community in the face of almost like insurmountable odds yeah. uh, is really the model for, you know, something like Mars colonization cool. or, That's or, good. So basically or you're saying if you're like into that, sci-fi, visit come, Iceland. Come to Iceland. Yeah. Well, come to Iceland. Well, certainly, I mean, everything is now getting filmed there. If it's not filmed in Canada, it's getting filmed in, in Iceland, seemingly. Well, well, the thing is, we're, 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 this podcast is for people that already know this and love it. Yeah, right? exactly. So we're, exactly. we're espousing exactly. about how great a place is that the listeners uh, already know is a fantastic Well, I hope they know. I hope that's the other thing. I mean, like, I hope that I hope that they know because it's really easy to sort of you know, take for granted, you know, where you are and, and how cool. special it is. But so so, so let, let's, let's get case. into the book, How to Future, yes. right? Yes. And because this is what we're here for. And mm-hmm. the world has gone through a digital transformation. Huge. Yes. In, 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 in the quickest uh, speed possible. And oh, yeah. we, a lot of our clients uh, that we're speaking to uh, are asking us, so what's the future? How do <laughs> I digitize my, my business model? How do mm-hmm. I drive efficiency? How do I stop being Ubered or Netflixed? Right. You know, and we, we have these conversations with clients all the time. How do we use AI? You mm-hmm. know, what, 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 how can we use more machine learning? What, what I loved about your book is that it shows actually, rather than future, being a futurist, being about just getting the crystal ball out, there's actually, <laughs> a pro, there's actually a process to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the... The, the different stages that an organization needs to go through if they're thinking about the future and how they future-proof their business? Well, um, so there's, so about, a bit about me is that I have a master's degree in strategic foresight and innovation. And so I was trained, I was actually just talking about this with my husband last night. I was trained to do, you know, foresight via a bunch of different methods. It's sort of like being a chef and, and people saying, well, I want the steak cooked to this temperature. And I say, great, I can give you the sous vide version. I can grill it. I can broil it. I can roast it. I can pan fry it. I can do this a bunch of different ways and get this to your targeted area. We can get within the the frame that you want, but you have to pick the methodology or we have to pick the methodology together of what it is to get you where you want to go or to get you the thing that you're looking for. Right. And, and so there's a bunch of different ways that we can get to a possible future or talking about possible futures. But usually uh, when we start out, uh, we start with basic scanning and sense making. We start with sort of what does the landscape look like? Because you do and a lot of work with Scott Smith, part of Change, do. don't you, who's the, the main author. Co-author, and, yes. And you you facilitate this process for organizations norm, as, as your day job type yes, of thing. Yes, we do. 
Yeah, no, we, uh, well, we're constantly, the one thing that we sort of landed on in the book also is that our sense making or our, our scanning process is almost constant. Like Scott and I are both people who are highly observant and, uh, or we try to be highly observant. Uh, and we are c- sort of constantly looking or being aware of things that are like new developments, whether it's in technology or in design or in culture or in, um, society or in politics and we're sort of always we cultivate a sort of we have cultivated within ourselves and we encourage others to do so within the book to cultivate a sort of nimble awareness of change and to recognize that change is sort of constant and will always be coming and therefore it's you know you can target your your scanning into one area you can look into changes you know within a specific subject area or within a specific location or amongst a certain demographic or or what have you so so what you're saying is that that if you're looking so rather than futurizing being two hours in a boardroom once a year it, yeah. it's got to be a conscious process and a continual yeah. process um, uh, yeah it's I, I mean i hesitate to call it you know a mindful practice or something like that but i think a lot of people do think of it that way i think that uh that being sort of alive and aware and having an agile responsiveness and nimbleness when you recognize that that change is coming sort of insulates you in a lot of ways from the fact that change is always coming you can't be surprised if you're always expecting the change to come yeah it's a bit like salespeople that go (laughs) i hate objections and i'm like Surely you should be expecting them because, like, you get them nine out. Like, if you get it nine out of ten times, the surprise right. comes when when, yeah. when when you don't get one. Yeah, no. The 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 past a certain point, it's it's more surprising when there isn't a change. It's more surprising when there when things remain the same. Okay, and so I guess because the speed of change is accelerating. Yes. Where in the past, futurizing could be a subconscious process because of the pace of change. Now mm-hmm. it's happening much mm-hmm. faster. You need to be more conscious. Because your subconscious isn't picking up enough information quick enough and processing it in order to yeah order to i would I would it. say that off, especially often like our subconscious is picking up on a huge amount of information, but if unless we consciously process it, you can't really action it like you can't really turn that into a strategy okay unless you've actually sort of processed those signals we, like we are constantly sort of signal gathering and then making sense of those signals uh in our work but i think people have that capacity naturally it's just that we often don't grant ourselves the time space or energy to consciously do it and and the, or even to to consciously do it and apply it within a certain subject area or to a certain problem so let, let's say for example i'm a cto or a ceo and i want to get my all organization to start thinking about sensing and scanning mm-hmm. future trends what process should i should i go through and how should i how should i get the ball rolling we talk about this in the book as a as an opportunity to sort of broaden your horizons in terms of media in terms of media consumption in terms of looking at what different demographics are doing it's a chance to sort of i always think of scanning as reading outside your comfort zone uh, it's a way to get outside yourself and look outside of the the your usual sources of information or amongst the or in in crowds that you might not be familiar with already. And that's you know, difficult. That's difficult in today's world because social absolutely. media wants us to to basically see the things that we like and the things that we agree with rather than absolutely the bigger picture. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it wants to, to sort us into sort of a customer segment, you know, everybody is familiar with the idea of like of a, of customer segments and, you know, we get sorted into those customer segments. We get sorted into sort of profiles where information or, or, you know, content is fed to us based on what our friends like based on, on those other things. And it really limits the opportunity for discovery. And I would say as an artist, as a writer, it also limits the opportunity for you know, finding joy in something surprising, you know, how often have you had the experience of like being truly surprised by something, you know, a film, a, you know, a documentary, a piece of a, a written piece, something like that. Usually when you have that sort of surprise and delight, it's because it came to you unexpectedly, not because everybody was talking about it. Yeah, no, and uh, that's, that's cool. So we, we start reading outside our comfort zone, what what else should we do? Because at the moment it's just me as the CEO. What what else do I need to do to get get that that futurist mindset moving? I think I think the other the other uh, the other big sort of cognitive hurdle is to recognize that change is coming and that what is that that what you have today you might not have tomorrow that the that the current scenario will not persist and that the only way to to deal with that effectively, to make yourself sort of quote unquote future proofed or what have you, is to recognize that that change is, is going to come okay. and, and to sort of make peace with it now and, and cultivate within yourself the idea that some of these things are going to have to shift. Okay. And, and, and I think a lot of CEOs are in a mindset. We, we, like 15, 20 years ago, the mindset was the CEO needed to have the answer. They mm. needed to mm-hmm. have the vision. Mm. Uh, how important is it that the CEO knows the future when, when trying to build a futurist culture? Or is it more important that you're ready to receive the wisdom of, of the crowd within the organization? Um, it's, it's, that's actually a really good question because I have been tasked in some of my own work, both with Changist and, and outside of it, I, often, I'm, I get asked to write science fiction prototypes for people who are often in the C-suite. So I get given a brief on a technology that's in development and I write a science fiction story set 5, 10, 20 years from now about that technology and how people are using it. And so it's a way to look at many possible futures at once. And that's what scenario planning, which is another of our mechanisms, also does. When we do narrative scenarios or when we show different scenarios, we say, like, hey, none of these are the future. They are many possible futures. In fact, some of them may overlap. Now, your job might be to choose which of these you would like to move toward and then backcast from there, which is another mechanism that we use, which is backcasting. So in terms of, you know, how executives look at those things and whether or not, you know, it's important for executives to have a vision, I think it's always a company that has, you know, the standard sort of mission, vision, plan, you know, that kind of mindset will always sort of know where it wants to be going. And any company that has its win conditions lined up, we will know that we are successful win. We will know that that it is the that the future that we are steering toward is occurring win. The, the nice thing about scenario planning or one of the features of scenario planning is that it gives you signals to recognize as they come. So once you've seen one a thing that sort of happened within this possible scenario, you're like, oh, okay, we're headed in that direction. This is the signpost. This is the mile marker. Yeah. We've passed the landmark. Now we know. And and so I think that it is important for for executives to have that kind of vision because it also want 
from a leadership perspective, it helps people steer and keeps sort of keeps a tight ship. On the other hand, if you're unwilling to listen when those visions come to you, like when when people when the experts in your own company are saying, "Hey, we have problems. Here are some ways to fix them." That's you know, you're you yeah. you might steer into the rocks that way. Because I, 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 the reason I asked the question is that I think one of the challenges for established businesses is that executives are so busy running the business as usual, uh-huh. actually yeah. futurizing and having that vision is very difficult because you just don't have the capacity that, that yeah. allows your brain to think about possibilities other than hitting court, next quarter's target. Where, yeah. And if you, look at, if you look at a lot of the disruptions in the, in the tech space is that it's not that the idea is new, it's just it was started by someone that didn't have to hit a quarterly target. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like this is that's the idea, you know, that Clayton Christensen espouses in like the innovator's dilemma and the innovator solution and and so on and so forth. That like that often some of these some of these solutions or some of these some of these innovations come out of sort of low stakes prototyping environments, which is the entire idea behind a lot of innovation hubs. Right. That that or or innovation divisions, which are which we used to call R&D divisions. Those used to be research and development divisions. You know, the the thing that forces has in common with that is that it is in a lot of ways pure research and it's much easier to sort of warehouse off people who are doing pure research and visit them occasionally but that will also leave you vulnerable to sort of not to to sort of saying oh those people are boffins over there i don't have to listen to them yeah but i think i think in in the, the the harsh reality is and it's not necessarily a bad thing i think a lot of organizations now have outsourced R&D to startups. So if you look at how big yeah, companies exactly. consume yeah. startups, what Absolutely. they do is they go, right, AI in financial technology. There's 100 companies. We'll track one. When we think <laughs> yeah. one's good, yeah. we'll buy it yeah. Uh, yeah. before it gets big. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the investors win, the individuals win, and they haven't had to sort of pick one idea. They let other people waste their time and money working out yeah. the yeah. ideas that will work. Yeah. Yeah, but I think like the danger there, I think that that's absolutely what happens. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know, farm teams in baseball or something like that. It's like, I'm going to let you play out in the minor leagues for a while. And then like, once you've proven yourself and, you know, gotten a lot of injuries, then we'll buy your talent. The the flip side of that is that I think if you start that core capacity within your own company, you get to steer where it goes and you get to sort of be at the at the ground floor in terms of the framing of it. You know, uh, if it's, if you want to steer sort of the direction of research or if you want to make sure that that research is in keeping with your existing brand. Yeah. That's the, so, that's the story, I think. Also, if you always buy in the ideas, why would anyone want to stay working for you, especially in no, exactly. te- technology? Like, the, like that's why hackathons are so uh, exciting because it, in, in big businesses because people – one people like the the people that have the best ideas in your organizations are probably the ones that are dealing with the issues that your organization has every right. day that, that right. you've said we don't have budget for this and we don't have budget for that or the individuals that are speaking to customers every day they're the mm-hmm. ones that see where the future's going where the mm-hmm. execs are just looking at the at the PL. well yeah i mean i think that there's you know the the thing that I think holds a lot of people back in Foresight or, or holds people back from necessarily wanting to engage with Foresight is that it inherently deals with problems, you know, and possible problems. And there's, especially in North American business, I, I can't speak for how it is in Iceland. I would imagine it's actually somewhat different. But there's a lot, 
I think people get punished a lot in business for bringing up the possibility of failure or the possibility of problems. Whereas, you know, in a foresighting context, when we are doing our work, we bring up the possibility of a negative scenario. We bring up the possibility of things going wrong, in part to insulate the client or, or to, to get people to talk about, well, okay, if that happens, what do we do? You know, that's, that's good strategy. Yeah, and that's and where I think if you look at the evolution of Microsoft, Steve mm-hmm. Farmer was a typical American corporate guy. So it was all about a no-wall culture. I spent 16 years in the U.S. corporate and mm-hmm. I, I've known people that said, I don't know the answer to that, to get fired. Now, not yes, for that, absolutely. Yeah, but exactly. life, life becomes very difficult very quickly if you don't have yeah. an answer. Where and it's, it's a it's a chilling effect. Yeah. Where Satya is much more of a growth mindset and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, we know yes. it's going to be cloud, but we're not quite sure how it's going to be cloud. And that, yeah. that sort of acceptance of the fact that we'll try things and it will fail uh, is, 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 is part of the innovation culture that all businesses need now. Otherwise, yeah. they'll go the way of Blockbuster or Kodak. No, and I think that that cultivating that resiliency and cultivating that growth mindset is, I think, like where sort of foresight aligns with uh, with those goals. Because when you acknowledge the possibility that you don't know, when you acknowledge the possibility that that there are negative externalities, or that or that you know that the black swan happens, right? We're living one right now. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, there'll it, never be a pandemic. Yeah, we no, don't need any yeah. PPE supplies. Yeah, yeah, we don't. You know, we don't need those things. That zombie apocalypse scenario can't possibly happen. That you know, oh. that kind of thing. And it's like, well, I hate to break it to you, but you know, not only do these things happen, but they can happen to you. They happen to everybody. Yeah, and you're you're going to have to muddle through it. And that's why you've seen that, you know, when those black swans happen, I think those create liminal periods within the development yeah. of a company, the development of a, of, of a country, where suddenly, as you said, you know, the innovations that were going to take years, especially digital, yeah. suddenly have taken months. Because what has happened? The things that people have been asking for, specifically like disabled people, working parents, people who wanted to work from home, you know, all of that, people who have been asking for those innovations for years and years and years finally got listened to because suddenly more people needed it. And whereas if you had been paying attention to those fringes, if you'd been looking outside that mainstream and said, okay, well, this is sort of a fringe ask, but like maybe we should sort of see what it is that these people need and you bring it forward, you know, that's oh, you never that's could have, You never could have foreseen people might want to be able to work remotely. Never. Yeah, no, no. It's not as though people have been discussing this since, you know, I, since I was born. I think, I think you're doing <laughs> the CEOs a favor to say they listen to those fringes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think what you'll find is the fringes broke in through the window, yes, grabbed that's the CEO's head, well, held no, it, it underwater and said, drink, baby, drink. That's, it's true. I mean, like, there's a huge, there's, you know, and that's where, you know, there's a huge number of activists, there's a huge number of organizers, there's a huge number of community groups, you know, who, and, and, and even sort of support groups within companies and so on that had been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and, and I think finally, once, Everybody got thrown in, in the or, or not everybody, but once once more people were thrown into that boat, suddenly it was like, oh yeah, I guess there is a case for this. And there's some companies that just made the switch straight away, right? They were already absolutely running a yep. cloud CRM. Everyone yep. already had laptops, 
And there's other organizations that were like, VPN must have VPN, VPN must work. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's also a, a case where, you know, we've we've realized over the, you know, certainly I think that there was a reckoning coming for corporate real estate for a very long time. You know, I don't know what the real estate market is like in Iceland. I imagine it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. But the, but if it's anything like other sort of major technological centers, the real estate prices are half of what makes the company expensive. Yeah. And to to deal with, if you can tell all of those people to work from home, how much money are you saving yeah. when you're not paying for this for this giant space anymore, yeah. and you're not hemorrhaging that money? And I think that you know the bottom line is the bottom line yeah. when it comes um, to stuff like one that. One of the things that that we love most uh, at Ego is when companies come to us and say, "This is what we're looking to do. How can technology enable us to do that?" So it's right. Sometimes it's not a bust about facility. In some ways, your business can predict where the or where the service is going to go, and mm-hmm. then you think about well, how would we execute that? Because often we can't tell people where their businesses are going to go and their industries are going to go. They need to tell us, and then we yeah. can help them on the different technologies that they can use to to make the most of that. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's about you know a lot of what we do in workshop facilitation, and I'm sure that you've gone through the same process. Is sort of creating the space to surface concerns that have always been there, but maybe have not had the opportunity to be aired or maybe have not had the opportunity to be voiced. So how do organizations go about tracking all these ideas? Because <laughs> you've got like, you've got like Inga in customer service is known as a Mona because she's always going, we should be doing this. We should she be doing that. This, yeah. And she might have a point. Uh, mm-hmm. But actually one of the reasons Inga keeps going on about it is that, uh, is that she doesn't feel anyone's listening. It's not logged anywhere. Right. So how should an organization do that? I think there's a, there's, I feel like we could do another book on just that, on like how to design a system for signal gathering within an organization. It's something that we do talk about in the book. That's something that we, we sort of, discuss in terms of how to start cultivating that sensibility amongst amongst people and also how to cultivate the sensibility of, of listening to those to to those people um, I think that you know that's where you I think you're seeing a lot more companies develop sort of foresight divisions or, you know, developing the foresight capacity. It's something that we teach. We go into businesses and sort of teach this capacity and start tailoring solutions per company. Because the thing about a corporate culture, you know, we always say, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast and so on and so forth. But you have to build in that core capacity in a way that actually is you know, fit and functional for the organization that you already have. Um, what we've seen, you know, in terms of successes or what we've, what we've, what we've seen people do is start to pick out the people within an organization, even if they don't work in the same divisions as each other, who just sort of have them, who are more interested in a foresighting mindset, who are, who do have that kind of growth mindset, who do actively think about the future, who understand that multiple possible futures are, are, you know, that multiple, multiple futures are possible who aren't necessarily committed to one. So are you saying we need to, are you saying we need to plan our business for multiple dimensions? (laughs) Especially after this year, I would say yes. (laughs) After this year. Yeah, sure. Because I think the one of the the worst, it's it's a bit like doing this badly. It's a bit like doing an employee engagement survey and then not doing anything with the results. Yeah, exactly. Having having a hackathon and then nothing changes. And that's that's the failure mode. Yeah, that's the failure mode is when you get all those 
visions and those opinions. Because, I mean, we're unleashing a lot of creativity here. We're unleashing a lot of a lot of creativity in terms of people's visions. We're unleashing, you know, their hopes, their dreams, their anxieties, their fears. And if you take all that energy and all that all all that you've unleashed and you don't do anything with it, that's the that's to me the failure mode. What what do the best companies do when trying to manage or balance the the dreams and the hopes that they unleash with the practical realities of ninety five percent of our energies as business as usual? I think that that's where you do need a good scenario and that's where you do need to do bad casting in terms of where it is that you want to be. Like the, the virtue of creating a bunch of different visions of possible futures is to say that one. I want that one. That's, that's where we can steer to. That is within reach. I can see the, I can see the, the path there and backcasting from there and sort of, you know, picking that and saying like, okay, this is the one that actually suits us. This is the one that suits our goals. And that's a process that I think people do in their personal lives all the time. I think it's a thing that people do, you know, if you ask them what their dream house is like, they can name it in detail. But if you ask them what their dream of the future of the company is, suddenly they're like, uh, I'm not so sure, you know, and, and it's, you know, imagining in detail all those things that are essentially the wind condition or, or where it is that you want to steer to uh, is, is important for that reason because that's a way to understand how your goal and how your current behaviors enmesh or don't. You know, we always, it's really easy to sort of look at what are we doing versus what we want or, you know, how do our goals and how do our behaviors align and that's where the, that's where a strategy piece comes in. That's the sort of almost like the messy middle or the kind of that's the hard part almost. Like that's where that's where it gets tricky because it's there's there's sort of looking at where you want to be and looking at what you're actually doing involves a really hard conversation in terms of strategy and goals. All right. Fantastic. Oh, this is we could literally go on. We, we, we're coming oh, yeah. to try and keep the podcast <laughs> to half an hour, and it's always difficult. Yeah. One of the big topics for us at the moment is AI. Yes, uh, We're getting a lot of, of companies that are coming to us going, this AI thing, should <laughs> we be doing, like, what, what should we be doing with it? So, so what, how should businesses approach benefiting from artificial intelligence or machine learning or, right. or sort of neural networks? I feel as though uh, I'm, people tend to ask me about this because I wrote a book about killer robots who eat each other, uh, but the um, and and wrote a whole series of novels about them. But the um, but I think that there's I think the one of the traps of artificial intelligence is to treat it in the same way that we've treated all models of servitude. You know, it's just there to do th- to do grunt work that we don't necessarily want to do, and and that's where it's inherently sort of where where we where we're limiting it. Now we're having better conversations than we used to about things like algorithmic bias, about you know, garbage in, garbage out in terms of how we program artificial intelligences, in terms of how we train neural nets. You know, I think you're only ever going to get. If you're if you're interested in engaging with artificial intelligence, one you have to recognize that the that your model of intelligence shouldn't necessarily be human. 
you know, we think that we are the highest intelligence on this planet and we may be in the process of creating something greater, better, or different. You know, there are other models of intelligence on this earth. There are, you know, there's hive mind intelligence, there's, there's corvid intelligence, there's all kinds of, you know, different intelligences amongst animals. There's different models of intelligence within neurotypicality amongst our own species. The, I think, designing for us as though we are the end point is inherently limited, but, and also invites it in all of our own biases, all of our own mistakes, the things, the, 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 you know, the, the prejudices, the, the biases, the limitations of our own cognition. You've gone deep. You've gone gone deep. Like we've we've opened up the AI box and you've, you've gone deep. It's the, it's, you know, the, I would say, I mean, I always hold with the idea that, that, um, that, Stories about artificial intelligence are amongst the are amongst the oldest stories that we've ever told on the planet. So, if you're familiar with stories about like you know genies or golems or or uh, or you know things that we create and give life to, Pinocchio, right? Yeah. Pinocchio is a story of an artificial intelligence, and that's why they remade it as AI. <laughs> the, right. You know, yeah, I think I that you know there's stories about creation. There's stories about what it is to create life, and therefore there's all the responsibility of creating life. Right. So, so it's like be be wary is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, be be careful because it's a you know it's picking up it's picking up something that you don't quite know what it can do yet, and um, and be responsible and recognize you know when we replicate our own intelligence, we are replicating both the best and worst of ourselves. It's a mirror. So, so, but I guess for for most companies, they will have a pretty good handle on their AI because it'll be their first one. It'll be automating a process, or yes. so that, that's going to be straightforward, I guess. So, it's, so when you're just looking at like narrow AI, it's basically what can I automate and what can someone learn? What can a machine learn to do as well, well if not better than a human? It's true, but I mean, I think that's also when you've automated it you're also inviting in the possibility for for things like bias. So for example, if if I automate a process that gives out home loans or determines the interest rate of home loans, right? I want a, I want an algorithm that will predetermine or pre-approve people for mortgages, right? The algorithm looks at the address in question, the the name and address of the people who are submitting and so on, and it gives them a certain preferential rate. Now, if I then go back and look at all of the generated, you know, responses to this question, and I realize that, you know, people of color from a certain neighborhood have been getting less preferential, you know, rates for their mortgage, all I've done is replicate an existing process. Now, that's what the AI was trained to do, right? It's there to replicate an existing process, but it's only perpetuated that which was already there. It's not innovative. So, it's so, not. You, it's not changing anything. So you're, It's not an innovation. It's just you know. But is it a company's job or responsibility to make sure people are treated fairly, or is it their job to make money? I think that I. Th- I think that the argument would be at the company level, there's sometimes the argument that it isn't their responsibility and that changes immediately after a class action suit. 
Right. Okay. (laughs) I think that there's, I think that you can, you can take that argument right all the way up to court. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And, and, and see how well that fares. Okay, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm scared now. I'm, 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 I'm already scared. So uh, it's a vulnerability. I would say that I think that every time you do that, I think that every time you know, I, I think that every time that you allow for possibilities like that, you're leaving yourself vulnerable. Yeah. You know, every, and every every stratcom firm, every crisis management firm would tell you the same. I think. I think the problems start to occur is when you've got an AI basing decisions on another AI. Like you look at social yeah, media companies. No, and that's and the yeah, like that's you, you the kind of extrapolating those problems to a point where you never even well, Microsoft's chatbot became a right wing yeah, racist. Yeah, no. Well, no, yeah. To you know, things like Tay, things like you know, that's where that's where there's almost like a. I think the closest the closest thing that we have in existing sciences is stuff like chain of custody or chain of evidence where uh, where we account for not only where has evidence been, but like all the phases of an experiment. Yeah, so yeah. right now there are a ton of vaccine trials happening, right? And some of those vaccine trials have been put on hold because uh, like today, Johnson & Johnson announced that like they were putting a vaccine trial on hold because of one illness within like a 60,000 person population or something like that. But that's because they had an example of where it had gone wrong and they had to look back at their own process and say like, well, okay, how did this start? And so they they had a responsibility for de- to determine okay well where did it go wrong, yeah. and and I think that's no different from you know okay we run a nuclear power plant we run we're running a vaccine trial we're running all these things now if that's if you're running you know your traffic system you know your signal tra- your your you know your highway system your transit system or what have you on a sim- on an artificial intelligence and something goes wrong right. You're still going to be asked to audit the process, and the answer, you know, my dog ate my homework, my AI dog ate, no, ate my homework, they, isn't going to cut it. <laughs> Tesla is a software company first, right? And, or, like, yeah. Am I willing to trust my life to uh, uh, overworked coder? Uh, working on the on, on the east coast that's yeah the, i mean do you do you want the, you know it's the it's the old you know do you want to drive a car that's that was built at four thirty on a friday afternoon you know <laughs> and and stuff do you want to automate a process that was written at four thirty on a friday afternoon no there we are and i guess that's the <laughs> And I think in some ways, when we're talking about physical health, there's a lot of those checks and balances in place. I guess yes. software and AI, it's much more about mental health and maybe that same yeah, resilience or, or, isn't there yet. Or, or yeah, the, the robustness think, of the process. Yeah, the robustness of the process isn't there yet because I think like physical health is, you know, there are laws around, you know, pure food, pure, you know, you know, drug safety, things like that. Um, there aren't necessarily the same laws around like publishing information that leads to a genocide or, or looking at, um, you know, security breaches, right? Yeah. If we treated security breaches in the same way that we treat sort of like, you know, breaches in a bottle of Tylenol or paracetamol, I guess you would say, yeah. um, things would be a lot different. Right. If we if we looked at poisoned information the same way that we looked at if we took if we treated Facebook like a company that that occasionally sells us E. coli tainted lettuce, things would be different. Right. You know, it's their You know, is it the grocery store's responsibility or is it the farms? You know, they're getting information from a farm 
the, the information might be tainted in the same it, way as it, buying Walmart, lettuce from a Walmart that gets taken to court, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's Walmart that gets taken to court because oh. they're the ones who sold it to you. Madeline, we're going to have to call it a day. We're opening up so <laughs> we're opening up so many cans of worms. We genuinely could yes. go on forever. forever. Uh, tell, tell, so obviously your co-author of a book had a future leading and sense making in an age of hyper change. So that's Indeed. something everyone should uh, look at. Uh, Madeline, you, I've just looked you, I've looked you up on, on Amazon. You've got your, uh, machine dynasty. So if you're a sci-fi fan, yes. I'm sure Madeline would appreciate you checking out her sci-fis. I've, I've bought it. So I'm going to be reading Thank you it so much. over the next uh, few days. Uh, awesome. I'm not, I'm not sure that 99 cents will help you retire that. Oh early, yeah. But, oh yeah. Uh, feed my cats. Feed my feed, cats. Feed your cats. Feed your cats. So, but thank you very much on behalf of, uh, Arigo, uh, hopefully we'll get you back because we'd love to talk about security that's a hot topic for us at the moment oh i'm sure yeah we could do one another one on on ai uh but but today it was all about how to future and predict change so thank you very much i really appreciate it thank you